This is Han Solo, and you're listening to Octo Radio, a Star Wars podcast. I don't know. Fly casual. What is going on, everyone? And welcome to a brand new episode of Octo Radio, a Star Wars podcast. This is it. This is it, the end of the Andor discussions, at least until 2024. But for this first 12 episode season, this epic journey, this wonderfully, just beautifully drawn character study of a show, multiple character study of a show, we have now reached the conclusion. This is episode 12, season finale, Rick's Road, a title that I love that we will talk about. And as always, I have brought in somebody to help me analyze and break down the themes, the character arcs, the great moments, the inspirational uh, Star Wars magic of the episode. And that is our friend Rick Villanueva from Jammed Transmissions. Rick, how are you, man? I am good. I just want to let everybody know how I ended up on this episode where Alden asked me and I said, either mute me or take me in. <laughs> and he went with the latter. So I'm, I'm happy I, to be here. I grabbed the microphone and I smiled and then we cut to black and then we got back <laughs> on this. Yeah. Uh, and then we turned the lights back on you. Honestly, man, but like there's really no one else that I'd want to close this out with. I mean, it's 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 harmonious. Um, I was on your show and we were talking about it and I know how much this character means to you. Personally, I mean, people that know you from the Star Wars digital space or from Jaren Transmissions, I think like Cassian is is like if they if they were to associate you, Rick, with a Star Wars character, they were to associate you with Cassian Andor at this point. He's your profile photo. This is your guy. And he has been for a while now. And I guess where I want to start with you personally is having had now one full and we know obviously that's a a pretty much every storyline cliffhangers in this you Mm. we need season two so it's not over but Mm. to have one complete 12 part chapter one of uh, the first cassian story how do you feel now that it's over because it's like it was four years of knowing this was coming it was announced in 2018 and then we get oh it's called andor and then it was okay two is gonna be in it oh no we're changing that oh like it was a long road to get to the show then the show itself was a long road it's the longest disney plus show that they've ever done and now it's over. And so how do you feel having had such a personal connection to this guy? There it well, first of all, thank you. Like and I, I said this on my show like a lot. Like Celebration 2019, I have an a Cassian replica jacket that my wife got for me for Christmas. And mm. for me, that's my everyday jacket. And people I I know people are tired of hearing this story, but like I had people that I'd never considered the like, you look like Diego Luna and guys. I don't think I do because he's a handsome dude. He's way more handsome than I am. Oh, you're a um, handsome dude too. And honestly, you well, do though. You do. Well, thank you. you. But but it's still like it, there's like there's that humbling of like just hearing people like, oh my dang, that guy looks like Cassie Nando. That guy looks like Diego Luna. And it's like, oh, that's cool. You know, I kind of stood, you know, a little bit taller those days at, at celebration. But as as far as the character goes, at the end of the season, there was a part of me when I finished the episode Wednesday morning of like, I had this little tiny shred of like vindication mm. because myself, and I know I wasn't alone in this, but myself and people who were uh, banging on those cylinders from the moment they announced the show about what this could be, because Cassian was such a blank slate. Um, you know, his backstory was contained in a few lines in Rogue One. And everything we knew of him was just what his character was at that point of the arc. And it was a lot of speculative kind of history for him. Mm-hmm. So I felt very vindicated in the idea that 
those of us who had been clamoring and championing the show for a couple of years, not only got the show, but we got something that people seem to, you know, at least a majority of the people who have watched the show so far are just as much behind it now as those of us were before we knew what it was going to be. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? But then, you know, just even as we've seen this character grow and develop during the course of the show and change uh, who he is, my cat is rubbing the microphone. I hope he's not, it's, hope he's not picking that up. <laughs> no, it's all good. <laughs> um, but um, as far as his growth on the show, we get to see him go from somebody who is very, he's not 100% selfish. We see him on Morlana one and he is looking for his sister. He's yeah. on this quest. And by the end of the thing, like he starts off alone and by the end of it, he's not alone. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's weird because in the beginning, he has a support group that he has distanced himself, himself from. By the end of it, he's largely unknown to that group anymore. But then he puts himself right back in the middle of it. And, you know, he was, he's this outsider who found his way back in almost by force. But, you know, because he, he now had this compassion for the people that were around him. So it was really cool to see all of all of that growth. It's been a ride, man. Like I, this is that show where I said it on my re, on my reaction the other day that we all said we wanted a show like this in in the Star Wars skin. But I don't think any one of us knew exactly what that meant before this show came out. This show has redefined so many things for Star Wars, yeah. while still remaining true to what by definition, all of the things that Star Wars is, because it's not a monolith. It's all of these things compiled into one. This is now, you know, another page, you know, another chapter in the history books of Star Wars that we didn't, none of us could have imagined to write, you know what I mean? Like we, we knew we wanted this, but we didn't know what it was that we wanted. Absolutely. Yeah. I think that, you know, the tracking that journey of the people that were excited about it back then, a lot of us, we defaulted very, very easily and understandably so as you know as you're saying with cassian at the end point being the fulcrum rebel intelligence he's a spy master he's looking for Jin. like he's he's one of the main characters in that movie but she's the main character and Mm -hmm. he's Mm -hmm. more functional and he's a full-fledged rebel at that point so i think when this was announced we were like oh it'll be early spy missions and that's not a that's not what it was at all it was right the immigrant story it was you know selfishness to selflessness it was displacement it was you know indigenous versus mechanization it was all, all of these things battles of like the soul and i mean all the real stuff it was saying about policing and prisons and religion with the mothma stuff and uh, uh, uh you know traditional fundamentalist societies like it had so much going on all things that Star Wars has been doing, but it's never done it like this, which is what I right, love. Yeah, it's yeah. like I've compared it a lot to to Black Panther. And if I've said this on before on other episodes, well, you're going to hear it again. That's like when you look at Black Panther, it's Hamlet. It's, you know, sins of the father. Heavy is the head that wears the crown. It's all of these things that we had seen, but we'd never seen it told that way with, mm-hmm. you know, people of color, with the African lens, you know, made by a black director with a predominantly black cast. And we had never seen we've seen these themes in Star Wars since since New Hope. And then really like Ewoks is a huge moment for, you know, the natural world versus the the mechanized world and for a community of people resisting. And even something like Star Wars Resistance on Disney XD is like the kids slapstick version of showing how fascism creeps in. And now it was, okay, how do we do that as 
an immigrant story and a prestige drama and something that's a little more noir, a little more hard edged, but also very, very Latino in a lot of its aspects because, you know, you have Diego not just starring, but executive producing, Mm -hmm. which has been a great sort of shift in the industry where suddenly like these people that love their characters um, are getting to produce their things. Uh, Disney's been good about that lately. Like Tom Hiddleston produced the Loki show and uh, Chris Hemsworth was a producer on The Last Thor. And that's and Ewan McGregor, of course, was a producer on Kenobi. And so Mm -hmm. to see Diego put so much of himself into it, to see where this guy was when it started, like you said, he's not a selfish person when it starts, but he's a person that like he would later communicate to Jin as the rebels would try to get her to realize He was a person keeping his head down. He was well-liked. Like, you know, people have problems with him. He owed everybody money. But Mm -hmm. it's not like they they were all like, "Ah, it's just Cassian. Like, he had a reputation of like, he's one of the boys. And, you know, we're frustrated with him. We wish he was making better choices. But he's not a bad person. Brasso loved him. Bix loved him. Of course, his mom loved him. Even, you know, getting stopped in the street, trying to get their money back. They're still like, he yeah. still gets away with it. You know, he was a, a charming guy. Kind of, you get the, you know, some lines that he might have been a womanizer. He was just this guy that was aimless. He was wasting potential more than he was being selfish about it. And there's been these key points throughout. Obviously, the moment with Skeen was a huge one where I've said that that's he's not a force sensitive character. So you have to tell the fantasy in a different way. And Skeen saying, you know, hey, man, we could take all the money. We could be selfish. We could get out of here. And Cassian killing him like that was a huge moment. But Cassian didn't even realize at that moment that he was starting to care. And then he gets into the prison and then that changes him. And he was, you know, we saw him there for three episodes. But because of the time jumps, he was there for, you know, over a month of just this grueling stuff. And he had this plan and that's where the leader was born. And so now we go into Rick's Road. You know, all roads lead to Rick's Road. I love the title, like making it such a mythic location. And hey, I do too. I think it's good. It's a yeah, it's awesome. Like the way we're gonna be talking <laughs> about it, like Star Wars fans, we have like a language, right? We could say, Oh, it's like Yavin, and we all know the Battle of Yavin. Oh, it's like Endor. Now it's like uh, it's like Rick's Road. It's gonna live on, uh, or it's like Jakku, or it's like uh, you know, Exegol, like any of these places where there's been a battle that's gone down, usually it's a planet wide and a space thing, but here it was like, no, it's just a street. Just like think about the street in your hometown, the main road. And if everybody was able to connect spiritually and ideologically and what that would look like, it all happens because this guy's able to synthesize what he always had, which we'll talk about Marva knew. And Marva tells Brasso to tell him that he knows everything he needs to know and feels everything he needs to feel. And when he puts those two things together, he'll be an unstoppable force for good, which it's so powerful. It sounds like something that Jorel would say to Kal-El. Like it, it sounds so inspirational and beautiful and hopeful. And now the thing about Cassian that's interesting is that this is the ending of this part of his arc, but it's not the ending of his arc because right. we know that's the thing. If this is somebody's first Star Wars, which is always possible, then then I'd love to talk to somebody who started with Andor because that'd be very interesting because they wouldn't. Like there's theoretically, there's somebody who just subscribed to Disney Plus, maybe got the Hulu ESPN bundle and they stumbled across this show and they were like, oh, this is kind of badass. I'll check it out. And maybe they don't even know about Rogue One. And that's fascinating, like to someone to not know where he's going. Um, it's weird to think about stuff like that for those of us who are so locked in mm-hmm. and like the people to try to remove yourself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, but we know it's a journey of committal 
And by the end of this, it's a journey of, okay, I went from aimlessness to having purpose, but it doesn't mean he's going to be in a great place. It's not like Luke or Ray or Ezra, where I find light and peace. He's still going to be in the mud. We know that mm-hmm. by the, by the beginning of Rogue One, you know, these, these next few years of, of rebel intelligence, he's going to do some dark stuff and he does dark things in Rogue One. And it's not until he doesn't kill Galen that he has a breakthrough of his own. So still a long ways to go for him as a, as a person in this, in this myth, but the progress that he has made has been so beautiful to watch. Like you said, the way that when we started the show, he had a sports system, Brasso and Bix and people that cared, B2 and his mom, but he pushed them all away. He was on iffy terms with all of them. Brasso had to lie for him all the time. And now when he comes back, it's him that makes sure that his little pod of people make it out. And he's able to deliver people to safety and he's able to be sort of as again like marva says the spark um which of course is such great star wars uh such a great star wars motif you know that will go all the way down to poe dameron and holdo and everybody so Mm -hmm. talking about this episode is interesting because it's different than the other ones and where we don't have to break them really by storyline or location because they're all on ferrix except for the mothma stuff so we'll start there and just not get it out of the way like it's not important, but it's the minority of portion of the episode. Mothma's arc ends on a sad cliffhanger on a, on a really sad note, which a lot of us, I think, saw coming. But what we didn't see coming is that it would also come with a little bit of Game of Thrones politicking, where she has now realized in her ongoing sustained pain, this process of realizing you're going to get your hands dirty somehow. You're either going to get them dirty with Luthen and Vel, or you're going to get them dirty by taking this marriage thing, or you're going to get them dirty as a mother or as a wife. Like you can't get out of this feeling good. And what she finally realizes here is, well, if they've got an ISB spy on me, then why don't I use that to my advantage? And it was something that I loved the way it was written and directed. Um, this one written, of course, by Tony Gilroy himself, directed by Benjamin Karen. It doesn't hold your hand and remind you that he's ISB. It's one of those things where it's like, as the scene goes, you're like, oh, this is a rare moment of Perrin is telling the truth. Perrin is, he's right. he's as he's surprised. That's genuine. And Perrin sucks and he's a jerk, but he, you know, even people that suck can be truthful. And in that moment, he's like, mom, someone's lying to you. And the way that she's able to play the marriage problems that everyone knows they're having for her advantage and to make it plausible, you know, give them plausible deniability about why their banking numbers would be weird was brilliant. So how did you feel about the Mothma stuff? And then the last little stinger too uh, of Davos family showing up. Right. Okay. So watching it, it, this is something that I think I've just learned to do with storytelling and kind of having a history of writing myself. I haven't written anything in a very long time, but it was something that I'd done in my past where I'm very much aware of kind of callbacks or thematic callbacks. So she's sitting in the car, she opens up her collar, she makes her decision right then. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's like she she's loosening the noose that's around her neck. She found she found the way. And when she does that and she, they make this is one of those things too where it's like there's never a line or a word wasted in the show when she says of their driver he can't hear us mm-hmm. okay? or one of them says i keep it down and the other one says that he can't hear us yeah we know he's listening right it's to put that in our heads again but it reminded me so much of 
Luthen's speech to uh, Lonnie, where he says, you know, I'm condemned to use the tools of my enemy. And she just got wise enough to do that. This whole time, she had been trying to, to ride this high road, do things with the Senate amongst the people, the gathering, this, this other political body of mm-hmm. a community to try to get something done. And it's almost like the opposite trajectory of Cassian, where she learned, she finally realized that she had to do this on her own. Yeah. She talked about having learned from Palpatine, you know, the, um, you're too busy paying attention to the, to the stone in my hand, but not the knife in my throat, <laughs> Cinta. But <laughs> the, the way that she does that, you can see the kind of hesitation in her face when she's talking to Perrin about it. And you don't want to feel bad for Perrin, but you know he's being scapegoated in this, po- in this moment. It reminded me a lot of the character transitions in Game of Thrones, where you have somebody who is on the antagonist side for a while, and then you start to see something of them that gives them some kind of moral validity. You know, like uh, Tyrion has that, where his character kind of goes back and forth. Um, Jamie Lannister has that. You know, a lot of those characters kind of play both sides of the moral spectrum. Mm -hmm. And we see that with Perrin. Like, we all hate the guy. He's a he's he sucks. But in that moment, you're like. Oh my God, like she's really doing this to him. Like she's really using him to further this end for herself and for this other grander cause. Mm-hmm. Um, you feel bad for him, but then you start to realize, no, he had a history of like gambling. We knew that prior with, you know, his, what she talks about him with, uh, with Davo. But when you and I spoke a few weeks ago on my show, about how whatever this decision turns out to be for her could represent a very low point for her. Mm-hmm. And it is, but it's also something that they've written into the show that um, that Lita kind of wants. She's not opposed to it. Perrin doesn't seem to be opposed to it. So she's worked the angles enough for herself to make it beneficial for her, um, where the morality of it is still very skewed from us, kind of in the God chair, knowing where she was and where she'll be afterwards in, oh. in moral terms. It's still a low point for her. But you also know that she has to work with what she's got. And she finally just saw all the pieces there, you know, where we we talked about it two weeks ago about like, why didn't Val just give her the money? Like, you know, they got 80 million credits laying around somewhere, you know, they could have patched that hole. But then the questioning would be, well, then where did this money come from? And this was an easier way for them to do it. So, yeah, it just I, I couldn't help but think of of Luthen's speech where, you know, I've said this a lot on my show. And when we talked about it, how there are these kind of thesis statements for every episode. Some of these monologues have become thesis statements for the entire series. Yeah, you know, with with Luthen's speech and you know Nemec's recording. That, you know, we'll talk about it in a little bit. You know, all the stuff that Kino Lois says, even Cassian's words, Marva's stuff in this episode. The little little moments of of B two um, in the first episode where mm-hmm. he's he's getting peed on by a hound, and the, it's the whole thing of like you're going to do this to me so much until I decide to fight back where he eventually stings the thing, you know, I mean, that's a thesis statement for the whole series on itself. Yeah. Uh, you know, as it is. So it was really well done uh, meeting like Davos, Davos kid, which that boy looked nervous. <laughs> like he didn't look like he really wanted to be there. Mom with her beehive haircut. There was something uh, like snooty about them. They had that kind of a Roman. Yeah. Sausage King of Chicago, kind of like Abe you know, from it. <laughs> yeah, totally. Uh, God, I love a Ferris reference. Yeah, no, you're, you're right. And like, you got to imagine, like, this could not be based. They've done such a good job of with Mothma and with Val. Mothma and Val's conversations of illustrating to us in 
not in direct terms, but the how the patriarchal society is negatively affecting them and how it probably has been for a long time. And there's it's just really small beats. Like all you need is Val say, you're not taking proposals. And then sort of the horror on her face. And they both look mm-hmm. mortified that Lita and all these other young girls are all there doing these prayers and saying all this stuff. You hear about the elder, like with very, very economical writing. It's not a lot of exposition. You're able to put two and two and two together and realize, oh, there's some sort of whatever you want to apply it to in our real world. There's some sort of fundamentalist Chandrillan branch that is having a resurgence right now during a time of galaxy-wide fascism. So it's like maybe prequel era Chandrilla with Mothma and Padme and Bale sort of all working together. Chandrilla was in a progressive period. Maybe, you know, we don't know, but you could sort of put that together. And now it's, oh, we've swung all the way into an empire. And all of a sudden the kids are getting a little radicalized and now they're having Bible study and they're all of a sudden they're, they're making decisions that even the parent generation, you know, the Vels like Vel is queer. She's it's, it's ambiguous, you know, she's gay or lesbian, bisexual, like they don't outright say, but she's in a relationship with a woman while parent is making offhanded remarks about her having probably not many options left for a husband. You have to find a widower and things like that. And there's a knowing look from Mothma. You get the idea that these two women were probably growing up at a time of positive change, but now it's all being burnt and it's all going back. And so you get this this little boy and he doesn't have any dialogue, but it's like, what is it like for the young boys and young men? Like, with Davo as your father, this kid's probably being poisoned, you know? Mm-hmm. And so it's like it, the, the fight for the next generation is all over this stuff. It's almost another facet of the immigrant story, if you really kind of look at it, where you see, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm just going to be very blatant about it, like the way racism exists in America right now, where there's a lot of like Nordic you know, like runes are being used and things that are kind of like old, old world North European, where you have American families who are removed from that mm. are really grasping onto that for this this ideology for this uh, this longing for like uh, of better days you know like a, back the way it used to be kind of thing and Lita is very representative of that where she's basically been raised on Coruscant she's removed from Chandrilla but she's using her and the other girls are using Chandrillan traditions or customs as a way of like. Uh, almost uh, clay, like reclaiming a heritage to to an extent where you know Mon Mothma is removed from her home world, her and parent are living in this embassy. It's not even their house uh, or their apartment, and she's claiming that again. Davo Skulden has been back and forth from Chandrila to Coruscant. He knows both sides. He knows what's going to work for him. Uh, and I'm not saying it's a one to one that you know leads this terrible racist child or anything, but it, it's there's this parallel to that. Um, where she's clinging to an old idea in search of an identity instead of grasping the kind of like the melting pot idea of I was born here, but raised here. I can adopt both of these customs together and make something wholly new. You know, the melting pot of, of America, essentially, yeah. uh, this experiment where she's, she's kind of rejecting that uh, and just saying, well, no, I am this thing. I'm always going to be this thing. The customs of this world don't matter to me because that's what defines me more than this other thing. Yeah, it's 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 really haunting. And I think Mothma even has a line about that um, to Vel about like, 
she's like no it's it's not it's not me it's lita and it's not even Perrin. even he's you know open-minded on this which like Mm -hmm. really tells you where we're at like even the traditionalist guy is not about this elder stuff this is this is even a bridge too far from his point of view um and the way that we we sort of gather this idea that like it's a it's a it's all the rage now on coruscant like you're saying this removal these people that aren't these these young kids doing this this study and these chants and these prayers they don't understand the truth you know they're getting the the version that's being bought and sold to them like it wouldn't surprise me if there was like some imperial propaganda like bookstore or something like or hollow net store that was like oh yeah like oh the elders back in like you know trying to get people yeah you know more into that way get the youth you know because that's part of it we don't see we see a lot of youth finding rebellion but we don't see a lot of youths finding fascism or fascism finding them rather uh there are examples of course like in lost stars you find that in stars resistance with tam's arc um you can find that in a few different places but that's always the creepier one and to flesh out those cultures um this show's done a really good job with that and i think that's a perfect way to segue into Barracks, which is where the rest of our storylines all converge. This Rick's Road battle, everything that builds up to it. They've done such a great job of fleshing this planet out with showing its reverence for their dead, for their lost. You get sort of the idea that not everyone is going to get the full parade, that it is a thing of honor. You know, Marva says to be worthy of the stone. Um, We know that Clem has one. So we're not going to go beat by beat by beat by beat, but... Out of this entire thing, there are some obvious highlights, Marva's speech, Brasso's communication, Nemec's manifesto, which you already touched on. But I guess sort of where I want to start here, if we're talking about parents and their children and what they can and can't control. And again, you know, if you're if you're listening to the Mothma conversation, you're like, oh, that's it. Oh, that's it. Like, that's all we get about the Mothma. Like, yeah, I mean, like it's that's ongoing. And we know, again, a Star Wars fan is where she's headed. She's headed toward loneliness at least for a while she you know by the time of rebels she's on the run and we don't know where her her husband and daughter are we don't know about dava we don't know anything she will find community by the time of you know the masasi temple rebels and when she becomes a leader mothma will find found family again leia especially but cassian is finding his sort of right now and what does he do when he first arrives there he turns to somebody who emphasized community like we know why clem was killed we've seen that now in flashback clem was killed trying to de-escalate trying to keep the community safe on Rick's road. He was trying to make sure that like, yes, this is terrible. And we know that Clem and Marva were uh, separatists, separatist adjacent. It's undefined, but they definitely did not want to deal with the Republic when they were on Canary. We know that. And to see him like, it's not part of the plan. It has nothing to do with the logistics. There's no plot reason why he goes to Clem Stone. It's all character. He needs to go. It's just the episode saying, before anything can happen that moves the story forward he needs to ha- he needs to have this cry like he does like he needs to have this moment of the soul and i love when star wars can stop and do things that aren't for the forward momentum it's to bring everything together and you know there's there's real world elements to this too like seeing a guy seeing a man just cry you know is important and it's important for kids to see that and it's important mm-hmm. for you know latin kids to see that to see this this hardened badass mexican star wars hero 
cry about his dad and and everything there. And so when he visits Clemstone, we get this flashback of Clem cleaning these parts. And he begins this motif of the rust, which will also happen in Marva's speech. And so you get the idea, like, this is probably something that they've talked about societally as a couple, as this Mm -hmm. couple having these adventures. How did you feel about this scene? You know, you being a dad, you have that connection to Star Wars. This has definitely been the mom's Star Wars show with Mothma, with with Marva, and even with Edie Karn. But it's fathers and sons will always make it in there somehow. And even though Clem wasn't an A character of the show, his presence hangs over this last episode so beautifully. So how did you feel about everything that he was saying? These scenes, like first with just him going to the brick, um, the first time I watched it, I wasn't uh, I wasn't paying enough attention to the brick to know that it was Clem's. I thought it was already Marva's. But then they get into the flashback and it's like that moment of him going to the brick was a reminder for Cassian as to why. Like you think up to this point, like he hasn't been on Ferrix since before Narkina, since before uh, Niamos actually. And so it's probably, let's just say it's been two months since he's been gone. We know he was in prison for like a month and a half or something. Assuming it's been a couple of months, everything has changed. It's like him going back and like that reminder of why, what it was all for, why he's really coming back. You know, he knows that Marva's gone. It's a statement on legacy. It's a statement on uh, parenting. And as a parent, viewing it from that, because I can look at it, most of us can look at it from from both sides, both as the, as the child and as the parent. Hmm. Um, but as the parent, it's a thing of when you talk to your kids, and I'm going to use myself as the, as the example here, when I talk to my son about certain things that uh, you might consider to be life lessons or some kind of, you know, something that's very important. Uh, you wonder, or the hope is always that it sticks and that they will then use that later on in their own lives. Like that's always the hope. Um, for Clem, that's like a hope. That's that's the the sunrise he didn't get to see was, was Cassian fulfilling some of the lessons that he taught him as a parent. Um, I feel that from Cassian's perspective, from my dad's own passing, uh, which we talked about off mic a little bit, you know, he died when I was very young, when I was five. I know that there were things that he told me then as a little boy, and my mom tells me stuff all the time, um, and there's just things that I remember, but then there's the fatherly aspect of it where the things that I do with my son, I would hope that he would uh, put those things into practice later on and help him shape his own moral character. So it was very cathartic. It was very bittersweet. Um, the father-son dynamics, especially stuff like this, Anakin, Luke, always just like punch me right in my core, dude. Like it's it's always some of the hardest stuff. Oh, and yeah. the show has has been very much um, the mother stories for stars, which has been fantastic. This is some yeah. of the best stuff we've ever gotten. It, it's it's a fresh aspect uh, for a lot of Star Wars right now. And but these scenes really really touched me um, those ways. And for what Clem specifically is telling him about not discarding the old, there's still value in these things so long as you. You know, like he says, you can knock off the rust. Each of these things is worth uh, like 500 credits or something like that. And instead of buying mm-hmm. a new one for 60 or whatever it is. And, you know, he's just reinforcing that everywhere around you are the tools that you're going to need to survive, be they the people or the actual physical things around you. Um, everything can help you get to where you need to be later on in your life. It's it's excellent parenting advice. And it's a moment of like fruition for Clem in this afterlife to basically say like, all right, Cassian knew enough. 
he paid enough attention to make the right decisions. So it's very, it's very fulfilling that way too. Absolutely. It's so beautifully said. I love everything you said there about connecting it to the sunrise and connecting it to, you know, real world moments of you can give the parenting advice, but some parents will be able to see it come to fruition. Some parents won't. Life is just like that. Some people are, you know, their runs are cut short and some people live super long lives. I know I, I know a woman personally who's 102. Um, so, you know, things like that. It's like it's, it's luck of the draw sometimes with life. But Clem didn't get to see this era. But once we see what he's saying, we look back at certain things and we're like, oh, OK, yeah, that's why Cassian is able to do X, Y and Z. I think mm-hmm. about someone like Kino Loy, who had been in prison for so long and if this if the rust is metaphorical or spiritual he was a rusty old part and it was cassian's breaking through to him that was like no no no, you can still be shiny again you could still be you and he's remembering yeah you can still have value you could still have value and he's done that several times and he's that's why he was the right fit for the Aldani crews because he is curious about all their backstories he's talking to all of them even before he knew Skeen was you know going to be a traitor they have that conversation about their backstories and being used by the system and be, you know going to prison and the prison tattoos and all that stuff and Cassian's keen powers of observation which will serve him later as an intelligence agent and as a spy master and all these things are born because Clem tells him people don't look down to where they should. Exactly. And- I was I was just going to bring up that point that Clem isn't just telling him to find the value in things. He's teaching him how to read a room, read an environment, find the, mm-hmm. find the tools that you need to either better your station or all of these different things. And so it makes total sense that he becomes an intelligence officer later on because he is intuitive. We see that with the Aldani crew when he starts talking about, you know, well, he's left-handed, put the thing on, you know, have him stand on the other side. Yeah. Um, or uh, flying the ship, you know, things mm-hmm. like that, that become not so much a second nature to him, but he is, uh, he pays enough attention to what's going on around him so that he can read the situations, but also learning some of that from Luthen uh, in that first arc where he tells him, you know, find, always make your exit. You know, there were still things that he had to learn. He was missing a father figure. Luthen comes in, almost becomes the surrogate for a brief time. Um, maybe not the best one um, as far as influences <laughs> yeah, no. go. He's not but, quite, uh, not quite Obi-Wan status. He's not, it doesn't make yeah, you feel no, good. Yeah, yeah, but but he's still, there's still things to be uh, to be gleaned from him. And that's, mm-hmm. a, that's, that, that's that lesson from Clem of like, yeah, here's this, this rugged, grumpy old man um, underneath that exterior. There's still going to be things for you to learn from him. Mm-hmm. And we see the way that, I mean, we, we know that B2 Emo was already uh, Marva and Clem's droid, but Cassian growing up with B2 as, uh, you know, the family dog, his little brother, whatever you want to compare him to, even though he does have a dog bed. So he's a canon, a dog in my heart. But the the idea of B2 getting older and him needing to charge all the time and his reserves being low and it takes energy for him to lie, but Cassian still believes in him. And that's because he grew up in that household. You know, right. he he's able to be this guy in the town that everybody, you know, he owes them all money, but they all still love him because he's intuitive because he understands how to work them. Uh, you know, this, this bearded Cassian that we meet at the beginning has his walls up, but he's internalized the Clem stuff. He just hasn't actually dealt with it, you know, returning and this all going down on Rick's road is important. You know, it's this idea of Marva saying when they hanged Clem, I would take the long way home all the time because I couldn't face that place. And then Mm -hmm. she's there as this giant blue luminous thing rallying everybody at the place she couldn't return to. Cassian is there battling and and running and gunning to save his friend slash former lover at the place that 
you know, Clem was killed. Like everything happens there. This old wound is finally being cleaned. And this rust that Marva talks about in her speech, which we'll get to, of course, that builds when you're asleep is finally being battled. And the way that that affects everybody is so beautiful. But I guess we're moving through these instantly iconic moments, these huge beats. The next one that I would want to talk about before, you know, because you get the idea that Cassian arrives at night or very early in the morning, whichever Mm. your perspective is. And and then that's the, uh, you know, there's a little bit of calm before the storm. And he takes some time to listen to Nemec's manifesto, um, which we didn't hear all of it. You know, that would probably take a long time. They should just release it on Disney Plus as like a as like a podcast. You can listen to it um, to the yeah. entire thing. It's just Diego Luna sitting. Yeah. Or just put it on Audible. Yeah. It, it was beautifully written. Uh, tell me how you felt about this whole sequence. That I, I brought this up on the immediate reaction. I, normally in the mornings when I would watch the show, I'd have my little trusty notebook and I'd be writing down little chicken scratch ideas or little quotes for things. This episode, I did not want to do that. I didn't want to take any notes on my first viewing i just like i just i know it's a long episode i, I want to absorb it all just experience this thing you know jumping feet first and the second i heard nemic's voice i was like i had to pause the thing i grabbed a different notebook <laughs> out of my glove compartment and i wrote down the entire thing just knowing again those kind of thesis statements per episodes this was going to be one of those moments where every single word mattered these are the words that are going to define cassian's fight going forward. So to get to hear it, to get to hear it in his voice um, was, uh, it's it's kind of the, like, it's the first rally cry of the episode, essentially. And it's in a very quiet moment for Cassian. He doesn't, this was an absolute choice for Cassian to do. He, he did not have to listen to this thing. You know, Val handed it to him saying he wanted you to have it. But for what we know of Cassian at that point in time, when Aldani's done and Nemec is dead, thanks a lot, Dr. Quadpaw. He he could Papa have just... was a nurse practitioner. He was not actually he didn't <laughs> he did not have all the certifications. That's my no, headcanon. No. Um but he could have he could have not gone back to Niamos and picked this thing up, or he could have left it, he could have thrown it in the ocean as a reminder of the thing that put him in prison. Um but here he is in this quiet moment, taking the time to listen to it. And you listen to some of the words that um, Dynamic says. We're, we're not going to go beat for beat into this whole thing. But I've said this before about the poetry of the writing of this show. Um, and something that I mentioned when um, when our friend Jerry Cable was on my show, um, I forget what episode that was on, maybe seven or eight. Um, in my own writing history, I had written a character who was described by another character as a champion of verbal economics. This was a guy who didn't say much, but everything he said kicked just square in the balls. Like that's just how it worked. And that's how I feel about what this show is. Yeah. This show is so, it's so careful with its words, its phrases, um, the the directing choices for those words, for the messages that are in them. And this manifesto, this part, not even the whole thing, just this part of the manifesto, um, This these were the 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 recordings of the madman who couldn't sleep before Aldani. This was mm-hmm. the stuff that he was thinking about after he met Cassian. So Cassian's probably listening to thing as a way of like, like there's a weird almost nostalgia to it for him. It's just like, oh man, I knew this dude, but he's also coming to know that he's defining him in yeah. this moment. It's also important to note that he didn't get the manifesto because Vel found it on Nimic's body and said, hey, why don't you take it? That was Those were some of his last wishes. He mm-hmm. wanted you to have it, not me, not Sinta. He wanted you to have it because yeah. he, like other people, saw what you could be. 
he didn't believe you when you were saying it was just about money for you. He knew that you that something in you was changing because Nemec was the believer. He was the heart. He was he was sort of a, a Leia esque figure before Leia would you know really get into the game proper. Nemec was somebody that he he was sort of like the not not that him and Luthen are angel and devil, but he was the other side of that coin where Luthen was like, I know that these times will end. But we're going to have to, we'll all be damned by the time they do. Nemec was, I know these times will end positively. Like, and I know, and I know we have what it takes. He was the yeah. optimist. Nemec, Nemec was the kid who, when you think about what Marvis says later on about tyranny thriving in darkness, Nemec was the kid who slept with the light on figuratively. He never let that darkness touch him. He was the eternal optimist, even in his fears. You know what I mean? He, he, uh, he knew how to manifest that, um, in in a way that became practical for him that he can use. Um, but one of the lines that he has in a thing uh, is something that I have been talking about from the very beginning of this show about how identities will change and the masks that people wear, uh, like front facing. You know, Mon Mothma has to put on a face while she's doing these things and Andor has to be one person to the people he knows and these other people, another face to the people he's going to know. We see Luthen literally change from one person to another. Um, it's all over the show. But he, Nemec writes this line, oppression is the mask of fear. And when he said that, it was like, again, like that little tiny shred of like vindication of like, that's what I've been saying this whole time. Mm -hmm. Everything that everybody is doing in this story is projecting a front and the core of who those people are is lying underneath. Yeah. Um, fear, fear is that core of tyranny of the, of who the empire is. We see that so clearly in this episode when these, you know, imperial officers are frantic you know, we hear later that power doesn't panic or we heard that earlier power doesn't panic. They sure as hell panicked in this episode. Ferrix became a massacre. Um, yeah. But that's all like part and parcel to some of the stuff that Luthen was saying about we need them to overstep. Um, Nemec almost seemed to be on board with that to say like, you know, the more they try to press us down, the more yeah. we're going to push back. And he says at the end, uh, I, I know you, you jotted it down, The what's that last line? Like until there's one too many, like this idea mm -hmm. that... They like much like Luthen, like in in simple real world terms, like you poke the bear, that bear is gonna take a swing. It's gonna swipe you, but it's gonna get it's gonna get sloppy. Like they're trying to get the empire punch drunk, you know. Like if if we yeah. can sort of get them to lash out in a sloppy way, you know, you have your people like ISB and people like Partagas that are very methodical, and we should note. Um, one scene we didn't mention in the Mothma stuff, Chloris does report back and we see that the ISB, ISB won as far as they're concerned. Um, Luthen wants them to think that, you know, and I'm yeah. sure that'll be picked up later. But they they destroyed Anto Krieger's men and like, you know, Saw Guerrera and Luthen made their choice. Luthen says it was Saw's choice, but Luthen is also, of course, wants Saw to think that. Um, it, it's it's the <laughs> entire idea of they are surgical, but these these on the ground Imperials, you know, they, they are acting out of fear. And even everybody all the way up to the fantasy opera of Star Wars, which is not in this show, people like Palpatine versus the Jedi or Snoke in the sequel trilogy, they are afraid. And that's the irony yeah. of these fascists. We see that in our real world right now with some of the rhetoric. They will in the same breath say, 
they're snowflakes, they're sensitive crybabies, they need a safe space and all this. But then it's like two minutes later, they're like, and the drag queens will destroy this country. It's like, okay, yeah. well, are they weak snowflakes or are they the, the biggest threat ever? And you see that with Palpatine where he's like, the Jedi are weak, the Jedi are foolish. Uh, but then by the time of the sequel trilogy, Snoke's like, however, we need to get Luke Skywalker because if Luke lives we could be it could be over for us like they are constantly yeah. paranoid and we and Deidre is paranoid with the way that she's trying to control Rick's road and the way she wants it laid out and this Nemec speech speaks to even Rick's road and Ferrix as an organism like it's this beating heart of a planet it has its own arc too going from okay we'll resist the Primor cops but now at the end, we're going to risk open battle with the Empire. They've been emboldened and they're, they have come alive. They've woken up and they are now fighting. They're shaking off their own rust. You want to use the rust metaphor, the sleeping versus awake metaphor, the keeping your head down metaphor, whatever it is. Star Wars is saying you can't do that. It's ap apathy versus activism. You look at mm. someone like DJ and Rose um, and Finn, like that's that arc in last jedi it's the the idea of rose when they think you know the jig is up the first order they're going to get us but even if it ends here at least we did what we could we freed these fathers we did something and dj is like oh well both sides man both sides they're the same it doesn't matter and mm -hmm. star wars advocates against that so with this nemic speech when he says something that i loved and i love that it, they, they cut to luthan overlooking um you don't you don't really know where he is. I'm assuming Segra Milo or something uh, during that shot when he's like because he he hasn't landed the Fondor yet. So Luthen, it might have just been him taking a trip somewhere. Who knows? He's probably got safe houses other places. Um, but he's Nemec is saying that there are people around the galaxy that don't even realize they've already enlisted. Right. And that they they are a part of it. And Ferrick saying, no, you know what? We're not going to delay our march two hours like you asked us to. We're going to start it right now. And I love that when Luthen gets there, Vel's like, oh, it should be a few hours from now. You'll hear the anvil. And then boom, the town is not playing by the rules. And it's the little things like, oh, they're starting early. Okay, get the barricades up. Okay, now they're walking a little bit faster. Okay, this is not good. And it's the slow build toward what we've actually now known, uh, even in the few days since this episode came out, is this iconic Marvel moment, which we'll talk about. But what Nemec is saying is that everybody that didn't fall in line, everybody that knew what Padme was saying was true, that this was Liberty dying, everybody that has lived uncomfortably for these last 15 years inside of this mythology, you're all rebels. Everybody is. Um, there's no capital R rebellion yet, but it's important that they all have their own form even people like bail and brea you see that in the obi-wan kenobi show bail wanting to have serious conversations at this party mm -hmm. you see that in solo of the cloud riders like everybody has their own rebellion which has been a theme of the show as well as they say in the aldani arc and for nemec to sort of with this speech on a meta level tell you hey there's a reason why every storyline is coming together right now was just beautifully said this whole manifesto is like it's, you know, yes, it's Cassian's moment, but it's emblematic of a lot of the characters that have come to shape him. They're all somewhat defined in this thing. You know, you can find nuggets of Luthen in here by definition in this thing, or Kino or Marva or anybody that's really come across Cassian to, to shape who he's become to this point. Um, a little side note, there is 
a very short YouTube video by a user named uh, SWFT on YouTube. I put it on my um, on Twitter last night. This person edited uh, Nemec's manifesto uh, with like subtitles on the screen to like different scenes from the show in Rogue One, and it is masterfully done. I urge everybody to go watch it. I think uh, Star Wars Explained shared it yesterday too. Uh, Alex did on on uh, on his Twitter, and it's great. Uh, it's it's uh, it's one of those like end of Rocky moments. You know what I mean? You hear something like this. You just, you just want to start punching fools, man. Like this is like, I'm ready to jump in the pit. You know what I mean? Like I'm ready, I'm fired up. That's how this episode hit me. And it is that slow build from this point going forward. Um, you look at it as just the, the way that the March, uh, the parade, uh, whatever, how that, um, how that the procession all kind of comes together. Which again, look, con- Rick, I don't mean to interrupt you, but we have to call it what it is. It's if if the Cantina band music is called jizz, this is sad jizz. This is this is funeral <laughs> this is jizz. This is blue funeral jizz. jizz. It's blue jizz. Yeah, like this is <laughs> it, it gets into triumphant jizz, but right now it's 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 the jizz of loss. We didn't make the rules. Anyway, no, continue. Right. <laughs> yeah. Um <laughs> Man, I, well, let's get serious, man. No more, no more joking around. <laughs> this is it's, somebody died. People are dying. Yeah, no, yes. but, but it's true. I mean, it is, it is this slow build, and like there are there, you know, the, the show does a great job. The episode does a great job of still giving you moments to cheer for. Ninety percent of them come from Brasso in this one. Like mm-hmm. Brasso is being a tank, um, but. Th- those that when he has that the conversation with Cassian in yeah. the tunnel. Yeah, let's go there because where... that's the next sort of like piece of this. It's the Clem piece, the Nemec piece, and now Marva's last words. Well, he, last personal words. Right. He it, it's not so much that that Brasso is conveying a message. He memorized her word for word. Like if you look at like if you put the show on with subtitles, he it it's it's in all of what he says is in quotations. In quotes, yeah. Um so not only did he know that, but he had to he had to commit it to memory to tell uh Cassian uh what what it is that she said in the exact same way that uh B2EMO re- literally records her message, mm-hmm. he records a message to give to Cassian personally and the very last line of that, or the last lines of it, where he says, um, you know, I'll, I'll love him more than anything he could ever do wrong, or he'll be an unstoppable force for good. Mm. Um, man, like just, it, if that doesn't get you just, you know, put a little lump in your throat or get you a little fired up for the person that he's going to become, like, I don't know that you have, like, that if your emotions aren't tuned for a show like this, you know, oh, because yeah, it grabbed I, me hard, man. I was welling up. Yeah, I, I, I spoke on Twitter and we'll, I'll mention where I cried, cried um, <laughs> with little B2. But yeah, I mean, this was the moment where I was like, my goodness, like, not only does her presence hang over the episode, even because at this point, you think she's not going to have a scene, you know, you don't know that mm-hmm. there's going to be a recording. So you're like, e- even as this plays, you're like, perfect last note for her for their relationship, but also the found family element. Like when we meet Brasso, it's like, oh, this is my friend. But again, in small ways, choosing their moments very carefully. He's not in every episode of the show, but this hug and him having committed it, like you said, the fact that it's in quotes, the fact that it's, she said you'd say this, like Brasso has been preparing himself for this for however long she's been passed, a few days, a week, whatever it is. It's like Cassian's brother and Cassian being an, an adopted child is another big note. It's 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 an immigrant story and an adoption story, mm-hmm. um, which, of course, is complicated. And a lot of people have pointed out something that they're disappointed with. And I understand it. You know, I, I'm not personally upset about it, but I understand like they were like, oh, I thought we were going to deal with the sister storyline more. I thought we were going to deal with more of the back and forth between them of Canari and 
a lot of people have pointed out, like, was it irresponsible for Marva and Clem to not look around some more before they left or, or did they, there's still some mystery there, which I understand. And um, maybe at some point we'll do a future of Andor episode where we could talk about maybe some ways that that could still play in. But the idea of found family, like if Clem and Marva are your parents, Brasso's kind of your brother. Like we don't know what his life is like, but he was there for your mom, you know, and that's such a, you know, I, I'm not sure about the the gentleman who plays Brasso's uh, real life ethnic background or nationality. But if, you know, for Diego to play Cassian, Cassian being a space poppy, as I call them, like th- this this community with Bix being sort of like this Latina sort of fixture of the community. That's a thing of like your your friend's mom is your mom. You know, your mm-hmm. friends, your friend's family is your family. And it's like that's that's that was for him to say, you get fixed, I'll take care of Marva. And for Cassian to not even doubt him. It wasn't like, are you sure? It wasn't like, you know, I can do both. Nothing. It was yeah. like, of course you will, because you took care of her when I couldn't. You made sure she took her medicine. You made sure her heat was on. Like, this is yeah, a I, this is a, a hero that doesn't, he doesn't need to have a hero's journey to be a hero. I, I, I look at this community, like, like you said earlier, you know, Cassian, he's not making the right choices for himself. And you've got, you know, I, I look at like the way my own grandmother was, where she would have been like, I mijito, like, think about what you're doing. And then you got like Brasso comes over to have dinner randomly one night, or she invites him over. And he was just like, Cassian will find his way. He's a good, he's a good kid. He's going to find his way. And then you have, like you said, Bix, the same thing. She'll come over and be like, eh, you know, we had a thing and he kind of burned me, but you know, he's not a bad guy. And you know, he always comes around um, where there's always these reassurances. And, but that's that community setting that we haven't really seen a whole lot of for Star Wars. We see kind of like the lone hero come up um, in some different stories, but it's, you don't really see a whole lot of the scaffolding around people like this um, that really, that really build them up in the same way. I mean, you do it in, in small pockets, you know, Luke has Uncle Owen and Amperu as a support system, but he doesn't have all of, you know, anchorhead around. There's far from it. You get the idea that like, it's like extremely isolating. And, and Mm -hmm. that's a, that's a, that's an interesting point too, not to cut you off, but you know, we'll get right back into what you were saying, but just on that note, how isolating can Star Wars often be, right? Like Ezra has love for Lothal, but his parents are gone and he's, he's, alone sort of like in an aladdin type way and he's got Mm -hmm. his hideaway and he has people that care about him and he has people he knows but he's isolated padme on naboo it's this idyllic beautiful place but she's isolated by the throne and by Mm -hmm. the pressures that she's been facing she was a teenage girl luke has his few friends you know he's they call him wormy and he's got bigs but then bigs leaves and that's it and he's got no one like so it this place is different and this place does sort of sing in a different way to your point about support systems. Yeah. Yeah. So it, it is, it, it is very telling that he would then go back to make sure that everybody he really cared about um, was, was taken care of uh, or removed. It's, and if you think about it too, you know, looking back at the early episodes, you know, the name of Jazzy comes up, I think in the first or second episode, and we finally get to meet her in these last few episodes. It's just, it's just very telling of, you know, it's that other facet of Cassian where, you know, he's like, I could take care of myself. Nobody ever gave me anything kind of kind of thing. But then realizing like, oh, no, I've never done this alone. Uh, even when I did go off to do things, it was only because of the support of the other people who loaned me money or lied for me or took care of Marva or made sure that B2 had, you know, somebody greased his wheels or something like that. You know, even in his absence, he had people uh, caring for him that 
he only realized at the very end. The idea of of community is so powerful here. And and I love the way that, again, like it's we've talked about the slow build. Once the scene is over and we know sort of where the cards are right now that we don't we don't know at this point that Brasso and the town and, uh, you know, another important character we should bring up is Wilman, uh, uh, Wilman Pock, um, mm-hmm. who is, is choosing the path of, of vengeance, you know, as he, as he should. And he is part of this rebellion and they're all, the show doesn't stop to tell you we made a plan with Marva before she died. You know, it's not like, haha, surprise, but it's through looks. Brasso and Woman looking at each other. Uh, B- he told B2 Emo in the previous episode, like, the daughters need your help with a matter of grave importance. Like, yeah. th- this, this, whatever was going to go down, if it was going to be instruments versus blasters, like fist fighting, something was happening and they were all prepared for that sort of levy to break. But you get now a lot of beautifully intercut storytelling. George Lucas would be so proud of how we're bouncing back and forth. We've got the Deidre villain storyline and them trying to have control. You have Cassian now scoping out from his little hidden perch. You have the fact that he's being sold out and betrayed and that somebody is on the take now. And we're and that was also, I forget the character's name off the top of my head. I don't know if you remember. Nurchie. but Nurchie, yeah. Nurchie. You don't see Vetch. It's not Nurchie and Vetch. I don't think Vetch he's, would have sold him out, but. I think, I don't think Vetch ever moved from that one spot that Nurchie told you are you just at our understand here he's been there for three months yeah, probably yeah he's and then people see him and they're like hey vetch and he goes what? well <laughs> what <laughs> um so if vetch had been in the fight it would have been a game changer but yeah so nurchy sells him out there's all these different elements all coming into play he knows that bix is is in the hotel he learns this um try, because he's been so removed from the information the only thing he knows when he shows up back home is that his mom's dead he doesn't know about yeah. anything else that's happened about the the isb hotel base he doesn't know about the torture he doesn't know about anything and i was surprised i thought that bix was gonna get some heroic comeuppance but they really committed to not just her story being somber but to the fact that she's messed up um she yeah. can't discern dream from reality at this point she can't discern what is marva's message from marva actually being there to say woozy would be an understatement She's not well um, mentally after everything that she's been through, which was a bold swing. Yeah, so talk she, to me about this this rescue and just everything you felt with her. Bix is the face of trauma uh, at, at the end of all of this. You know, she, Cassian going in, it's one of those things too, like, okay, first of all, Marvel was right about the tunnels under the hotel. So there's that um, where everybody thought she was kind of losing her mind uh, because she wasn't mm-hmm. taking her meds or whatever. But him going in, there's essentially nobody there because everybody's out on the road. Um, it's almost like the, like this happenstance planning, you know, the sisters, the daughters of Ferrix said, uh, we don't care what the empire say. We're going to do this on our terms. This is how we've always done it. It's our tradition to do these things at, you know, space noon or whatever. And we're not changing that for anybody. And it just so happens that that's when Cassian decides to go in, he goes to get her out. And she, like you said, is not cognizant of what reality is in those moments. And when she said, uh, to Cassian, um, Marvel was here and his response is, uh, yeah, wasn't she great? We're just like, oh, that, that God, broke dude. me, like, man. It broke me. Jesus Christ. <laughs> man, it was so hard because you still, you know, he's not just saying that as a means to comfort her. 
Yeah. Um, but it's also a way for himself to come to terms with the fact that she's not there anymore. It's truth. Um, it's true. It, it's functioning on multiple levels. I mean, there's a beautiful moment before he runs, you know, he starts running and gunning and, you know, just on a, on a, on a, on a superficial, like just a like, cool note, the way that he takes out that one guard, punch, spin, break your arm, throw you down, blast her to the chest. Like yeah. it, it's, it's coming together, you know, Cassian, the spy badass is coming together, but both him and Bix have a moment where the song changes and the horns sort of come in. And it's when he's in his perch and she's by the, her, her, the window of her prison. And, and it's like, they know that song and mm. the show doesn't need to tell you that they know that it has now kicked in from the slow march into what will be the ceremonial sort of like honorific part the the part that is about remembrance and as marva speech will later tell us again the show gives you so many things you put them all together to learn about cultures the way we did with chandrilla once mm. marva says oh i want it to be lifted by the dead you get the idea that maybe this part of this song tells you that the message from the dead is coming and you can sort of have, see cassie and like i'm about to hear my mom and then for Bix, she's, you know, she's out of it, but she can still sort of, she hums along. She still says the stone and sky and they, they are able to recognize these things. And so when he says, wasn't she great? It's him also like processing that she's gone, comforting Bix, but also acknowledging like, I didn't get to stop and watch her. I'm hearing it as I'm on this patio and as I'm going up these stairs. Uh, but he's, he's saying like, yeah, like things, things outside right now are different. And he doesn't get to, he's not witnessing it. He's not down there in the crowd, but Cassian is intuitive enough to know that things are changed now because of his mom. The show's called Andor. That doesn't just mean him anymore by the end right. of it. Right. I was, you know? I was thinking that too. It's about yeah. it, literally his family, both, you know, Clem and Marva and himself in that moment when the music is kind of starting up, like you said, there's that tonal shift, that reminder of, of Marva. Uh, it's also at that time where, in the flashback with Clem prior to this, you know, Clem tells him uh, the man who sees everything is more blessed than cursed. Um, and that's something that literally Cassian puts into practice in this episode. He goes up to like this watchtower to get the survey, the lay of the land. He's very aware of everything that's going on, even though he is he's the catalyst for all of this stuff. But he is not he's not the one. He's not the rebellion here. He's the reason why they're all there. Marva's the she's the match. Um, that gets struck, that gets this whole thing going. And her, during her her speech, I was thinking of in episode three, when all of the, the Ferrix citizens are banging on all the, the metal and stuff like that, that she, when she has the line of, um, it, it's when it's when the noise stops that you begin to fret. Um, it's It's only when she herself has become silenced that the real threat starts to emerge from the spirit of who she was and how she's come to inspire all of these other people. Um, it's her own silence, physical silence that inspires everybody else through this, you know, a hologram essentially. And I also had to think too about while that was all going on, yes, B2EMO has been the emotional core of um, some of the last two episodes, but he witnessed her give that speech. You know, uh, he, she had to stand there and record it to him. So he, literally carried the weight of like the, the burden of her sacrifice in his circuits or whatever, you know, however you want to view like droid intelligence. Um, yeah. Like his, his sadness was palpable. He was carrying the weight of all of that messaging. Um, so it puts his sadness with Brasso in the last episode 
in a different perspective where he was saying like, I want Marva and like, I don't want to be alone. He's alone with the idea of her, but she's not physically there to console him. Yeah. Um, yeah. And he's which, had this now, like, like you're saying, like he, Tony Gilroy does such a great job with K2 and with B2 now of the droids being part of the morality play of Star Wars, where a lot of the times they're, it's not that they haven't been before. L3 is a huge example. Um, BD1 and Fallen Order, like it's BD1 that picks Cal up in the third act of that game. It's yeah. BD1's backstory that jogs Cal, you know, out of this funk. Um, and if you haven't played that, you should. Um, it's a it's an excellent story, especially if you love a good droid. But K2's is about his programming, having been evil, having been changed to good, and then being surprised by someone like Jin. B2 is about persevering through sadness. He He's coded not just as the old family dog, which is sort of how Tony Gilroy describes him. And that's true. It's like the old dog that can't quite get up the stairs anymore, but still has a lot of love. Um, mm. He's got a dog bed, but he's, you know, these are fantasy characters, so they could be multiple things in the same way that some Disney princesses have animals that understand them and stuff like yeah. he's, he's part family dog. He's part little brother, but what he's embodying thematically here to your point of carrying her message is like persevering through sadness. He's coded to be a creature with anxiety. He's got a little bit of a stutter. It takes a lot for him to, to do more than one lie and, and for him to have to really turn his energy to be something like this is huge. You know, uh, uh, Nikki, Nikki Kumar, one of my collaborators here and also from Imperial Senate podcast, he made a joke, which I loved of R2 launching Luke's lightsaber in Return of the Jedi and throwing it to him and then B2, you know, throwing this message out. It's like they both were delivering, you know, what they needed to deliver in these moments. But R2 was already a hero. R2 yeah. had been a hero for decades. This is a moment and B2 represents the town and the music doesn't shift to the fast march until his gear changes. When you see B2 actually do the like you know his little in innards change yeah, the inside yeah is when they actually start to move with more oomph and some speed and some purpose and that was him in his own droid way i mean he even chants stone and sky in his little beeps you hear the wow 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 like he's having his own realization and he's not fearful you know he doesn't panic he doesn't try to roll away when the blank in the cape gets thrown on him like a blanket yeah. you know as an aside like it reminded me of vision's line in what in wandavision uh early last year when the what is grief uh but love if not love persevering and it's also you know, it, it takes you right back to the beginning of the entire saga with Luke saying, I've never seen such devotion in a droid before. But yeah, he's he's right there in the fight. And it was that part of me too, like watching the procession where he's out in front and like it reminded me of like, you know, like when you see like a kid, like a John F. Kennedy Jr., you know, uh, at the Kennedy assassination, uh, the, the funeral, the procession, um, you know, putting on this brave face, uh, being, being uh, front and center for all of it. And that dude kicked him over. I was like, there's going to be hell to pay. Somebody get that man. And um, when oh, I, let's just jump into into the action piece. Here. Yeah, I mean, like, well, like, yeah, like, so, well, let's jump into Marva's speech specifically, and then we'll okay, move into right, the action. Right. So, yeah, so all the pieces are in play. Everything we've talked about. There's the the hotel rescue for Bix. Luthen is there. Vel and Cinta are there. Vel and Cinta don't get a lot in this episode, but they are. You get the idea that they're having problems maybe as a couple like it's like it's not an active argument but cinta is 
you know, we're told her backstory by Skeen and Skeen's a liar, but we can assume that this is pretty true. It tracks like she, she's she's on the vengeance warpath as well. She's so dedicated. She's more on the Luthan Clea side of dedication, whereas Vel is starting to realize because you know, Vel has a foot in a different world. She has a foot yeah. in the high society and she is there. You know, she comes from a repressive society that probably doesn't even allow for queer people. You get the read. Um, you get that interpretation. This relationship is struggling because one is about the cause. Like Sinta loves the cause more than anything, and Vel loves Sinta more than anything. And that's a clash that's happening. Um Yeah, that that there is a is it's a clash of priorities. Mm-hmm. You know, where what one is doing it for the other and the other is doing it for everybody. And it's very like needs of the many, needs of the few, you know, if we're mm-hmm. gonna if we're gonna talk about other other franchises and iconic moments. And I loved all of that. I loved Luthen showing up. And the best thing is that when Luthen shows up, he's still on the we're going to kill Andor. That's his whole thing. But this speech, let's talk about Marva's speech. We've been sort of hinting at it and touching on it. Her idea of sleeping about rust and everything. It all building to like I've said this line to myself since watching the episode and I've gotten myself to tear up just thinking about it. The if I could do it all again, I'd get up early and I'd be fighting these bastards i'm so glad she got another bastards in there because she, her first one was so good uh with a pre more bastards line um that i'd be fighting if i could do it all again i'd get up early and i'd be fighting just that as a thesis for somebody older in star wars to have that perspective because a lot of the older people in star wars are usually more tied to the mythology and the mysticism like obi-wan and things like that and it's like he's come to a level of peace but marva came to you call it peace, but it was clarity. Um, mm-hmm. And she's realized how much war there is left to go, but that she wishes that she hadn't avoided, you know, the episode being called Rick's Road again, this place that she couldn't go. She she wishes that she hadn't done that. She wishes that she it wasn't until she was on medication and, you know, couldn't walk well and things like that to make yeah. the change. And so for everybody to be watching that, old, young kids, droids, like everybody to be seeing that, it's like the time is not later. It's now and how powerful it was. It was just, it was so affecting. Her whole speech could have started with Laura Santeca's line of this will begin to make everything right. It, it was very moving and telling like, because we also, we know, again, being kind of in the God chair as the viewer that it's because of Cassian's actions on Aldani that she was inspired to stand up again in the first place. Yeah. Um, and she doesn't even know that it was him or she didn't at that point. Mm-hmm. And she talks about, you know, wanting to get back into this fight and she's deteriorating, you know, for health reasons. You know, they, we come to find out, you know, she is more interested in eating food than taking her medication because it yeah. suppresses her appetite, which is a very real thing that happens. Um, but this that whole speech that she gives about, you know, I said it earlier about, you know, uh, tyranny uh, thriving in darkness, mm-hmm. um, her saying it's it's easy for the dead to say to, to stand up and fight. Yeah. Um, those kinds of things. No, she doesn't want to um, be remembered. You know, like that's that's not her her goal. It's not ego. You know, she's like, when I was a kid, I wanted the dead to lift me. And now that I'm dead, I'm realizing I it's not even me trying to inspire, be some glorified, deified, like, hey, remember Marva? Like it's about ideas. And 
And this is a question I wanted to ask you, and it's a question that I will be asking Star Wars fans, I think, for years until we get season, at least until we get season two, but possibly forever, because Mm -hmm. Tony Gilroy leaves a lot for interpretation intentionally. A great example is the sister storyline, you know, could it be addressed more in the future of Andor? Absolutely. Is there stuff that we could learn through Marva and Flashback? Absolutely. There's nothing to say that there's not more Marva story to tell. There's plenty um, Mm -hmm. between them finding young Casa and then the beginning of this show. Tons to do there um, and before. But this idea of when in this episode did Luthen Rail decide I'm not going to kill this guy? And and was it? I think he decides, obviously, when he's got the blaster in his hand and he looks at him and he smiles. But I think his heart decided for him before his mind caught up during Marva's speech. Because when they cut to Luthen, he's cracking a smile and it's like his he doesn't even realize he is. Because in that moment... It doesn't make his epic speech to Lonnie wrong. A Luthen still won't make it, we assume, unless he's off screen in Rogue One and New Hope the whole time, which I doubt they're going to do. Luthen won't make it. But something did change. He says, for a sunrise I'll never see. And you've already brought up the sunrise here. He doesn't see it. It's not like Luthen gets to see the, the Battle of Yavin and gets to see the Death Star explode and gets to see a capital R rebellion at Scarif. He doesn't get to see Admiral Raddus say the Rebel Alliance like he doesn't get that. But this was like when the sun's just about to come over the hill and you could start to see the glow. You could start to see rays of light coming up from behind. That little smile was like, oh, my God, it's not it's not just in the shadows anymore. Like that's Luthen realizing it's not just this Batman-esque network. It's not just like, you know, using people. It's not It's not leverage. It's not politicking. It's not hiding. It's not wearing a wig. Like, it's finally happening. And mm-hmm. then also, Luthen, we got to keep in mind, you combine that with the fact that he knows his whole life story. <laughs> he knows about Clem Andor. He knows about all that stuff because he researched this kid before. He knew Bix. And he's now putting this all together. And from my interpretation, I think he's hearing this and he's like, if this is that guy's mother and this is what he comes from, I really don't have to worry. I don't have to worry. I have other stuff to worry about, but I don't have to worry about him. And I think that's why he gets on a speeder and rides away instead of getting in there, you know, because he could have used the chaos as an opportunity mm-hmm. to get him. That was 100% my read on it, too, that it, it was her words where he has this realization of this is the stock that Cassian comes from. He's he's got it. This is, you know, Brasso telling Abuelita, like, he's going to come around. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. we talked about it earlier. This is them saying he's got it in him. He just needs the right motivation. Yeah. And I joked about this the other day where it reminded me of um, that episode, the monorail episode of The Simpsons with Leonard Nimoy mm. at the end where he says, uh, well, I guess my work here is done. And Barney says, well, really? You didn't do anything. And he's like, didn't I? And he just fades away. <laughs> yeah. That was Luther. Like He didn't do a damn thing this episode except for see somebody else uh, willing to fight. Yeah. He, it seemed like for him, he, like you said, he thought it was this cloak and dagger, you know, strike and retreat kind of um, kind of fighting this guerrilla, yeah. you know, these guerrilla tactics. And no, here you got this dead old woman who's just saying, poke these bastards in the eye until they all fall down. Um, like yeah. no more hiding. And a whole and city him, like he gets the smile with his hood up, then woman's bombs go off and there's all these explosions and Nurchi dies and these Imperials in the hotel dies and the windows are all blown off. And, you know, we'll, we'll address the Cyril Karn of it all too in a second. But when, when Luthen Peace is out, he takes a second at the highest peak before he gets back on his speeder bike to look out over the city. Yeah. And he's and just listening. He's just listening. And it's like, oh, wow. Like 
his his 15 year equation, which he said, you know, there was no ground for me to stand on when I looked down anymore. He's realizing that new ground has been laid. That yeah, exactly. He he says to Lonnie, you'll stay with me, Lonnie. I need all the heroes I can get. He says that cynically and he knows he has Mothma and, and they don't address other people in the show, but, but we know, but he knows about Bail Organa, like Saw Gerrera, like they all know about each other. But mm-hmm. for the first time, he's seeing boots on the ground heroes that he didn't have to buy, that he didn't have to uh, steal, that he didn't have to backstab. It's pure. And yeah. and he's seeing like none of them were part of a network and they're all just people and most of them can't even fight. They, they Some of them have instruments and like they're or just bricks if you're brasso using yeah. using the ashes of this woman mixed in with the bedrock of your home to beat a fascist over the head cannot be overstated and he's hearing and seeing all this and thinking oh my god like the sunrise isn't here yet but i know it's i know it's four in the morning like i know yep. it's like it's, it's, coming. it's coming and that i think all- that, that changed him the symbolism of Bra- uh, Brasso with the ash brick literally throwing the first blow with Marva's ashes. Like she got in the first licks of this whole thing. When that happened, I was like, oh my God. It was like, I'm in my car. I'm like hooting and hollering. I was just like, oh, like keep doing it. Just keep doing it. And the whole thing kicks off. This, that moment there, it reminded me a lot. Uh, if, if we're going to put like a real world, uh, kind of parallel to it. Like this was like the Star Wars version of Tiananmen Square uh, t- to an extent. I mean, it's mm. not a one-to-one, but that was a moment that people witnessed that became an inspiration for other people to channel some kind yeah. of action. Or Stonewall. Uh, I've seen people already throw around exactly. Stonewall as well. Yeah. yeah. Plenty um, of them. So yeah. Th- there, there's a ton of them. Um, and we know Tony Gilroy is a student of history. He probably found something in uh, the Russian revolution or something that was just like, Hey, they, somebody did this on uh blah, blah, blah road or something. Yeah. Uh, who knows? Yeah. And um, uh, Deidre almost gets French revolution for a second there. She, oh yeah. 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 It got close, but yeah. The moment of her getting clubbed with that rock is like etched in my brain. Um, just like the, the second, it's almost like they did like, um, like the it's, Batman 66, like pow. When it yes, happened. it's just played right so there. well the way, and then it's the a hit from this side, then a hit from this side. And then when the crowd got her, I thought, Oh, they're going to do this. Like I really, I thought the show was gonna, I thought we were going to cut away and hear like a scream and I'd be like, that's the end of that bad guy. And then, yep. you know, they didn't go that way, but yeah, it gets real. Yeah. Yeah. But, but all of that, when, like I said, Marvis speech, the whole like Tiananmen square of it and Luthen kind of just seeing it, knowing that his sacrifices per his own motivations are not in vain because he's not alone as a leader. There are other functional leaders. Like Nemec says, there are other armies and battalions who don't even know that they've enlisted yet. Um, That's that's what this is. To -hmm. see all of the people rise up, to see Wilmon throw his his Star Wars pipe bomb, to see the uh, the Garandin long snoot kind of get dragged away, like the only alien we see in the whole episode um, get dragged away when B2 gets kicked over. I was like, oh, no, you didn't. Like somebody smashed that fool. And mm-hmm. there's a there's a screen grab of Brasso <laughs> making that that first connection. And <laughs> on the bottom right, you just see two Imperial boots stick up. <laughs> it's 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 strangely comical mm-hmm. um, because you're rooting so much for these people. They're all in this in this uniform, yeah. um, this procession of something that's supposed to be somber. And it turns into a different celebration of life it's like a uh it's like a new orleans funeral procession um that yeah. turns into like this 
cacophonous riot of of just life and this yeah. fight for survival. Because if Marv's talking about being lifted as a child, right, and how each person that died on Ferrix that was honored with a stone and had this moment passed on wisdom or truth or love or whatever, what she's passed on, everyone responded to, which was that they can be more and mm-hmm. that, that that their potential, like Ferrix became Cassian in this moment. Like your potential is bigger. And yeah, you, you're going to probably pay for this. We could assume like, I'm sure Ferrix will be either that town will be blown up or like, you know, it's not going to be a happy thing. It's not like Lothal where that's a successful, we repelled the empire and it will, it will be rebuilt to a more beautiful place. Like we see in the epilogue of rebels. It's, it's this idea like Luthen was, he didn't think he was going to make it to the promised land. So he was desperately hoping that Saul would connect with Krieger. He was desperately hoping that Mothma would preserve the sanctity of the inner circle and not mess with it. He was desperately hoping that it could all work out. And now he's seeing people that are proving Nimic right. Like these are people that aren't in any inner circle and they're people that chose community and chose what he had been asking of others. And they didn't need to be asked and they didn't need to have any sort of like hidden communication. They did it loudly. They did it in a messy way. Um, It was there was nothing covert about this. And it takes someone like Luthen, who is a spy, who doesn't have a foot in either, you know, a firm foot in either world. He has to sort of be this phantom that exists between two worlds. And for him to see like what this community is able to do, it changes everything. It puts everything into a new context and, and the way that that affects Cassian, you know, he's not, once he saves Bix, he's not running and gunning anymore. It's not like he gets in there and is like, let me help Brasso shoot some Imperials. He doesn't do that. And maybe if he had, things would have been different. If Luthen had seen him, you know, if Cassian ran in mid-speech and helped them, like, who knows what would have happened. But it's the fact that he doesn't see this kid at all. He knows he's there, but he doesn't see him at all. And is like, I'm just going to leave. And that's what brings us to um, our ending B, which we'll talk about before we get there. If there's anything else you want to say about the Marva speech, let's do that. And then and then we'll talk a little bit about Cyril and Didra as part of this whole thing. The, the only thing that I have to say about her speech is that, I mean, it just becomes, you know, she's she's the road flare that sends mm-hmm. up the signal. I mean, you know, just literally and figuratively. I mean, she we knew in the beginning, you know, she presents as, you know, this kind of this frail older woman. Um who is like the ignition, you know, there's one, there's one more turnover in that engine for her. And it, it's just enough to get the rest of the town going. And it's one of those moments, and we'll see how it plays out for future Star Wars uh, storytelling, how much Ferrix becomes like a defining moment if this is something that the Empire brushes under the rug uh, as a failure. Because um, who knows, after this, I mean, there could be a, another quote-unquote mining disaster on Ferrix and the whole town is gone. Uh, her brick never gets to be part of the foundations of a new building. It's just become this weapon that I don't think she'd have any problems with. But again, it's it's that statement of legacy for both Clem and her and what they've meant for, for this community and the choices that everybody's had to make. You use that word. This whole series has been nothing but the definition of choice and how it comes to define people um, interactions later on. Uh, this was a choice by her. She could have just, you know, she could have died peacefully uh, or quietly, I should say. And she didn't, you know, this was, uh, this was the independence day speech. You know, we will not go quietly into the night. You know, this is, uh, this is Braveheart. This is all of these moments uh, wrapped up into, into a speech that uh, is, as far as I'm concerned, one of the best written rally cry speeches in modern, um, you know, storytelling. 
I agree. I mean, I, I said this uh, maybe on Twitter, on air. I don't know. It's hard to remember where you say things when you make content. But the the idea of one show having the Nimic Manifesto, the Mothma smile scene, the Luthan Lani scene, the Kino speech, the Marva speech, the Marva and Cassian. That's just love. There's nothing you could do about that. Like, there's so many scenes that you could piece out that you could play that at the Emmys and be like, boom, that's television. That's storytelling. Yep. And Marvel speech is one of those. It will go down um, with, you know, Braveheart. It will not, it will go down with, we won't go quietly. It'll go down with an hour of wolves and shattered shields, but it is not this day. Like all of those things that you think about when you think about pre-battle stuff, this was a different one because it was also an admission of, of complicit, actions it was a, a complacency like she was like i've been sleeping she didn't she didn't say you all but not me i was always right you know that's not the tone she's like mm-hmm. i've been sleeping too i did it we had each other we had our work we had our days we ignored it and that was the problem and i think in 2022 having a story that's like when you ignore it this is what happens um was very poignant and then to have as well as luther witnessing it as i said cyril karn is also present He's there. He even brought everybody's favorite Scottish sidekick with him. And like they've got the, you know, they're there in civilian clothes. They do the little hat trade, which is just such a fun little weird, weird Star Wars beat. Like it's just <laughs> a, that's one of those beats that you just do and you're like, that's interesting. Like it's just a character. Like they are so oh, the way I interpret that is they are so into their own like hero uh status their heroism like they see themselves as the law like we're gonna go right this wrong get this bad guy that they're even like what disguises should we wear like they're thinking Mm -hmm. about that type of detail because cyril thinks of himself like the hero of the show he thinks the show is called karn like he really thinks that it's him and that this is his chance but what's great about the show is that you know you think about you know you referenced the MCU earlier when Wanda and, and Thanos battle an Endgame, but it's Thanos from the past, and he's like, "I don't even know who you are." Like, yeah. like to <laughs> to Cassian, Cyril Karn was this cop that he saw once that he didn't shoot in the back of the head months ago. They just let him go and then mess with him and left. And but for Cyril, that's his arch nemesis. And I love that the show after that first arc, I thought, okay, Cyril's going to be on his tail. It'll be like you know the cop is looking for him. Maybe we'll get some close calls. You never get a close call. He never even remotely gets to see Cassian again. They never even mm-hmm. have a standoff or anything. What he gets is further indictment of everything that of everything that the Empire is, further indictment of fascism, further indictment of hero complex, of fetishization, of power, of like of the police state, of all these things. And Cyril being this ignored, privileged, fail son, white guy who's now obsessed with Deidre on so many levels. And yeah, there's like a little bit of that, like, are they going to become a heinous power couple? Like, are they about to smooch? But it's like, like that scene of them after he saves her from the mob, which is like, it's not like he saves her like some hero. He doesn't start shooting people. He puts the gun on her. So he's still a threat to her. He's a creep. He's a stalker. Mm-hmm. It's like the anti like evil version of Han and Leia and Empire in the in, in the Falcon. Like this man, this woman tight corners. She's like, I should thank you. But she's still panicking. And he's all satisfied because he's like, I'm a hero now. And it's like, no, you are exactly what Marva is talking about. You are the slow creep. You are the we ignored you and we ignored you and we ignored you until you became a bigger problem. And you're about mm-hmm. to be the biggest problem. You would imagine now that he's has this relationship with this ISB person that he wants to be with, wants to actually be, wants to be next to. It's all of those things. I thought 
they used him expertly. You know, he didn't need a big villain moment to still be about what that episode is saying. That scene where he drags her out is like the thematic opposite of B2 being dragged out. Like one is for a selfless, I guess, I mean, it's a droid. It's, it's metal and plastic and wiring. Um, and, you know, him doing that for her is like very self-serving, um, but also like, see, I told you I could be a benefit. You didn't, you didn't think I could do it, but I was here to save your life. And when she says, um, I should, I, I should thank you. And he's like, you don't have to. I was so waiting for him to tip his hat and say, "Milady." I was like, like, come on, <laughs> like, what is wrong with the yeah. both of you? And I get it in that moment, there's adrenaline and there's all of these things. And, you know, I've seen some people say things like, you know, I thought they were going to kiss. And I mean, it's there, it's palpable. It's a real thing. But I was like, my God, if she kisses him or if a kiss happens in this scene, it would have to have been from her side, from his side to her, not from her to him. Yeah. Guys, um, I think that would, that would show a failure on her part. Yeah. And because uh, he, she understands, yeah. And the, and, the, and the writing is so good that it's able to bring them together, but still make, like, it's nothing changed from her perspective. But from his, again, he thinks he's the romantic hero. Like, I'm sure yeah. they left that closet and he probably had the blaster out and was like, I'll protect you. Like, he probably, if you keep that scene going in your mind, he probably thinks like, oh, we're a team now. Like, because yeah. the whole time he's fantasizing, like, she's here. Like, wow. Like, again, he wants to be here. He wants to be with her. He like, it's all those things he would love. I'm sure he's probably like, so do I get to join the ISB now? Like, can yeah. I be your assistant? Like, he's, like yeah. he's walking around like that. That's, that's one of those things that going, it's going to define everything for him going forward. I was mm-hmm. brave enough to show up, you know? Yep. So, and I, okay. I'm, I'm going to use a, a real name here. I mean, this is like this, that like this Kyle Rittenhouse kind of thing. He went from across the galaxy to go try to take down Cassian um, mm-hmm. and didn't care about anything else that was going on mm-hmm. uh, and ends up getting put into a situation that has come to define him for the rest of his life. And for him, it's an act of um, validity yeah. because he had proven to Dejamiro that he was capable of doing something when when you want to you want to break it down, he was literally in a place he should not have been in on stolen money, mm-hmm. um, doing something that he shouldn't have been stolen doing money, which he, is he had, he had been demoted from a position of security. And that's full circle because that's exactly the first time he was told not to go to Ferrix. And mm-hmm. now, now he, hear, he hears again. And you brought up, you know, the real world comparison with Rittenhouse and, and, and who is a murderer who, you know, gets off. And like, it's this idea that when you are the societal bootlickers and you've convinced yourself and you've had the Kool-Aid to the point that you believe that you're righteous, that false righteousness of all these people that you've othered, you know, like Cyril begins in the first arc and the Ferrix arc of the show. When he's still Primor, like we're looking for a canary male, like does like dark complexion or like something like that. And it's like yeah. he is that guy that he is the most 2022 Star Wars villain. He is of now. Um, and so to have him there, I think it was important to talk about as well as 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 the Mothma stuff, like Mothma and Cassian in a whole season yeah. never meet. And Cyril and Cassian only have that one moment. They never have a, a showdown, but mm-hmm. everybody is serving the themes of what is happening when you ignore certain things. And Cyril has ignored what he really needed, which was therapy, you know, or some sort of come to Jesus moment with his mother. Like he is, he's so desperate to be something and that's how they get people. And he's so desperate to be right. That's how they get people. Cyril and Lita with turning to the elder and the Chandrillan gods are saying sort of similar themes, sort of thematic statements, similar thesis Mm -hmm. um, in terms of, this era is about snuffing out individuals. Well, where do I fit? 
I want to fit. I want to be an important piece, but you don't mm-hmm. want to be your own. You just want to be an important be piece. Part of something, and right? you know, we're you know, we'll jump ahead a little bit to the after credit scene. We've seen now what they were building in the prison, which a lot of people theorized that there was Death Star parts. But what I love about that is that that's a visual that says so much because it's the way that it's shot. It's a zoom out, zoom out, zoom out, zoom out. They weren't even building Death Star pieces, man. They were building like the little gray Lego connectors, the screws, like. They were building. No, th- there's no screws in Star Wars, didn't you know? So I've heard. So I've heard. <laughs> Jesus, yeah. <laughs> oh boy, yeah. But there's like they were building the pieces that. And again, it's you have to word it as insignificantly as possible because it makes it more heinous. Like, yeah, an entire prison, five thousand men in that prison, an entire level of which were murdered to cover up what was going on. Um, I believe it was a hundred men that got fried on level two or mm. maybe 200, something like that. And they weren't, they were like they were building the droids. It's not like they were building the panels. They were building the rivets and screws that the droids placed for the panel pieces of the panels of the bigger panels that make the dish that then rests on these other pieces that then all go into the Death Star. All of that stuff. And it's an insignificant little thing. And that's that goes to show how the Empire is. Everything to them is just, we will bleed out whole worlds for tiny little pieces. And that's that's Cyril Karn too, man. Like you are, you're just a tiny little piece and you think you're so significant, but they don't think about you. They don't think, Deidre didn't think about him after the one interrogation. And now she has to deal with him all the time. But it goes to show they, you know, power doesn't panic and the hubris and everything. But everything that we're seeing here with people, small people trying so desperately to be big, instead of accepting that small is okay, which is so classic myth and fantasy, like the hobbits, the Ewoks, everything, even small metaphorically, like a smuggler and his Wookiee, you know, end up turning Mm -hmm. the tide, you know, like being small is fine. Stop trying to be significant. That was Anakin's downfall. I want to be the greatest. I can be the greatest. And like, you shouldn't want that. The empire believes that they are and their hubris is always their downfall. Uh, We didn't, you know, we didn't think that Galen or so could ever screw us over. And then we see what happens, obviously, in New Hope. Oh, Death Star got blew up. They'll build another one. They'll never be able to do it twice. Like, it's arrogance. Well, it it also speaks to the very George Lucas idea of the mechanical versus the natural, where you've got these metal pieces being put together to make the dish of the Death Star versus Marva's ashes being put into a brick to lay the foundation for a new building, to build a future, to build legacy. Um, These pieces, like you said, the insignificance of those to the to the empire, to the importance of having your name etched into a brick with your ashes in them, speaks to the differences between the heroes of this story and the villains of our story. You know, that that stark gray cold in space, no life. It's not even people, it's droids putting them together, where you, you follow who built the, the Death Star framework, it was all the Geonosians, and then they were all killed mm-hmm. to basically keep the secret. It's not about the life doing it anymore, it's about the machinery and the mechanical that's doing it. Like I said, you have a brick with the ashes of are now a spiritual leader uh, in death uh, on uh, on Ferrix that is that led these people to this, as Nemec says it, this small act of insurrection. Because um, mm. in the eyes of the, in the of the Empire in galactic history, that's essentially what it is. It's a sm- it's a small group of yeah. people um, standing up. And again, the episode's um, not called Ferrix, right? That we go back to that title. It's called Rick's Road. Like this has yeah. been the smallest, most important thing that we've had in terms of galactic events um 
even Lothal was at least like the entire city. It was the entire planet. Like that to call it Rick's road emphasizes again that they embraced their smallness. They knew they were just a marching band and the local community. Like that was they were okay with being small and they overcame fears. We talked about with B2. He's this small thing. It's not like he has jetpacks or blasters or anything. He's not a droid that can even hold his own like R2D2 or anyone like that. But it didn't matter. And and that's why it's so important and so poignant. And so to tie it all in, as we start to wrap here, that want to end on kill me or take me in, you know, which we, we referenced up top. Uh, I've, I've chosen not to kill Rick. I will be taking Rick in uh, for my personal <laughs> rebel cell. Uh, well, but thanks. yeah, you're welcome. You're welcome. Thank you. Thank you for joining. But this this ending is so perfect because we've seen Luthen's journey mostly told through silent moments in this episode. He talks a little bit to Vel, but then he's lurking. He says he cracks that smile. He looks over the city. Then he chooses to leave. But Cassian again, Clem's Clem's lessons. He's looking to where people don't look. He's being intuitive. He's you know recognizing patterns. That's how him and Kino are able to do what they did in the prison. I always point out to people, Kino or not, level two or not, Cassian was getting out of that prison somehow because he's already mm-hmm. working on the water pipe before everything happens. So what does Cassian do? He goes into spy mode again. He remembers. He's like, I know where this guy parks his ship. I bet he's parked his ship there again. He gets the drop on him, but not in the way that we expect. He gets into the ship puts his blaster down and then hides. And Luthen's about to get out of there full stealth, as he says. And then it's the standoff. And Luthen can't, for a second, he's so, you, he's processing everything he just experienced and saw and heard. But his his reaction is, what game is this? Like, he can't, he, he's been looking for heroes, but you get the idea that outside of Clea and Mon Mothma and Lonnie to a certain degree, he hasn't met one quite like this. Mm-hmm. He hasn't met one, even Saw, you know, he has to rein Saw in and deal with him and try to shape Saw into something that can be functional, um, that can, you know, because Saw's paranoia is starting to set in. But nobody, you get the idea, has ever done this. Nobody's ever signed up willingly for the inner circle. And yeah. it takes him aback. And the, and the way that Diego plays it is perfect. And it's the kill me or take me in. But he doesn't, he also promised his family that he would still be there, you know, which and I, I want to talk about them together. Like, yes, that's why you saw me on Twitter. I said it. That's where I was a bawling when he says to B2. Um, B2 says, you always say that. And he says, and you always come through. He that's, you know, that's for the pet owners out there. And I just lost it because that relationship is so beautiful and pure. But Bix says, Cassian will find us. And he says, I will. I'll find all of you. He gets Jesse and Brazo and everybody in there. Uh, Willem and Pac is still there. Um, he's part of the group now. And they go to this place called Genji Moon, which we don't know, um, which I'm assuming will be part of the second season. And that promise is truthful because it's what you said, Rick. Like He came home to take care of the people that were taking care of him this entire time for the years we didn't see, you know? And so when he goes and does this gamble with Luthen, he knows he's going to survive because he wouldn't do this gamble if it didn't mean he couldn't go to Genji Moon. Like, he's not going to leave his people high and dry ever again. And so he calls Luthen on his BS and it's a gamble. Like, he's playing with house money here. Like, he knows how this is going to go because he made it. Like, why didn't Luthen snipe him from afar? Why didn't he X, Y, or Z? And Cassian has processed his own survival and uses it against Luthen. And Luthen's like, he doesn't say anything. It's just, what game is this? And then he kind of chuckles and smiles and looks at him like, you're right, kid. Like, you got me. You're right. You you called my bluff and you're right. It's the first time anybody, at least in this show, has gotten the drop on Luthen. Mm-hmm. 
you know, Cassian sees him in the street when he's up in that tower and gets there before him. I thought Cassian was going to pop out of his little like dressing room closet thing from earlier. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, but um, it's got rings yeah. on and stuff. Yeah, yeah. He's got, he's got his wig on and stuff, <laughs> <laughs> but it, 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 um, it struck me, you know, for Cassian to stand there, hand over the weapon. It was very much the return of the Kyber crystal. You know what I mean? Here's here's the, the the literal gem from the rough that is coming back to say like, um, let me be an asset for you. Like I'm I'm good at this. Like and at that point, you probably have to to remember that Luthen doesn't know that Cassian had been in a prison and and found a way to escape. He doesn't. He may not know all of the intricacies of what happened after Aldani. You know, I'm I'm sure Val knew about scheme to an extent, mm-hmm. but who knows what what Cassian told her? And probably, uh, why, yeah, why, she why probably Skeen is dead. She probably communicated what she could. Um, she says to I think Clea says that they knew Skeen could possibly be an issue, and mm-hmm. you know, I thought I thought that Luthen's Sky Kyber crystal was going to come back this season. It doesn't, but it's not a plot hole. It's like you could just assume like the eighty million had to get dropped somewhere. She probably threw the crystal in with Luthen's share of the money. You know. Like it's mm-hmm. probably didn't make it back to him, but what information he has or doesn't have, he's been so paranoid about there's a leak. There's a leak. Like if he's out there, the information could leak and we have to kill him. He's a loose end. But when the loose end approaches you and says, now I'm challenging you to not just talk about it, but to be mm-hmm. about it. I had a blaster to your face when we first met and you said that I could be more. And now you've come to kill me. You're full of Bantha poodoo. Like you are not being what you said you were. Now I'm challenging you to be your fullest potential, and that's to be a mentor in some way. Yeah, it's it's a full circle moment where, you know, you have Luthen talking to Val and to Clea both saying, like, I live in his, in his head, and that's a threat. And this is the turnaround for Cassian to say, no, I've been in your head this whole time, like rent free. I've been here. You've been worried about me, and I've shown you every step of the way. Not only can I be an asset, but I could also, I could have taken you down if I wanted to. And you would not have known about it. I'm better at this than you've ever thought I could have been. Yep. And be- because I'm from these streets, I am from Ferrix. You in your high tower on Coruscant have been living cushy. And yes, you've been doing your thing. But I am of these streets. I am of this mm-hmm. fight. I have been in survival mode for the majority of my life. And that can be an asset for you and what it is you're trying to do mm-hmm. because of what Marva did down on Rick's Road. That's a great point. I mean, like it, he is from these streets, literally that street, Rick's yep. road. Like he's from the gutter. He's from the mud. He's from the dirt where they work with their hands. There's a scrap yard. Everyone's got their gloves. They all go out drinking after it's a hard life. They always can't afford to pay the bills and keep the heat on. You know, mom is sick. Like he comes from a hard edged reality. And, and also, as we know, a previous even worse reality of being in this group of only children survivors on Canari. Luthen is doing great work, but you're right. It is that different perspective of, I've used the Batman comparison a hundred times already with Luthen, but when Batman gets a Robin, that's his perspective changing. That's, Mm -hmm. you know, because Bruce is removed from society. The Bruce people see is fake. The only time Bruce is ever real is when he's with Alfred in most iterations uh, in the cave, but that's not making a connection. It takes Dick Grayson, the first Robin, who's this kid from the circus. It takes Jason Todd, this kid from the streets. It takes Tim Drake, this kid who's also suffered similar loss, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, to humanize this person. And for someone to find him, it's like now I'm imagining Cassian telling him about Narkina and how mind blown Luthen will be about what went down there. 
Um, if he doesn't already know, Cassian could say, hey, did you hear about a prison break on Narkina 5? Yeah, that was me, man. That was me in the time that you've been worried. I was out there doing more great works. And to know that it's all headed toward Cassian Andor, the Fulcrum agent, the rebel intelligence officer, um, whatever role Luthen plays, you know, we'll talk about, I'm sure, in the next year of fan speculation. Um, but it was just a beautiful note to go out on. The show has done such a good job of going out on the down notes. It's not like it goes out with like, hell yeah, I'll take you in, like whatever. Like there's no like moment, there's no handshake. It's not like a predator, you know, you don't get, you know, yeah. there's nothing like that. All you needed was to go back to Diego's face and for him to sort of have that, like it worked. My family's safe on Ganji Moon. This guy's now no longer an issue. Cassian, this was his first big, I can be an officer play in a certain way. And it was refreshing to see. And it was a beautiful note for the season to go out on. So if you have any last thoughts, or if there's anything that we missed about the episode, we'll be talking about this one so much more. I have yeah. no doubt um, this, as we go on. This but. one is this episode, this series is going to, it's going to stay with me for a while. Um, a couple of things kind of throughout the course of the the season, I really loved um, the minimal use of stormtroopers throughout the series. Um, I like that it, it gave the Empire a face instead of just being cannon fodder. Um, even in this episode, you know, the um, the frontline kind of riot officers, you know, their faces are wide open for us to see the yelling and screaming of the Imperial officers throughout this thing, you know, their fear, their their panic. You know, it it's it gave a human face um, to see the infighting of the ISB with Blevin and um, Dedra. You know, we see that in the books. Like Catalyst has a really good, you know, the Tarkin Krennic kind of cat and mouse stuff that's going on between those two in in Catalyst. You see that there, but to have this on screen was really cool. The Cassian and Cyril relationship is very much reminiscent of uh, the Batman Joker relationship in the Lego Batman movie. You know, Joker's like, are you fighting other people? Yeah, he's like, we're two sides of the same corn and batman's like no i could live without you like no it's cool and he's like what are you talking about man we're bros we're like arts nemesis but like i'm here for you man i'm always going to be there batman's like yeah no i don't really need you i don't even know what you do like whatever um i have a whole rogues gallery in case you haven't noticed Mm, (laughs) you're not the only one that you know it it presents its own kind of humor um it's all there it's been uh, underlying uh some of that stuff throughout throughout the season it's been some of the best uh star wars that we've gotten and and i say that uh, from the position of having grown up with the original trilogy and you know having been there for all of these things at different stages of my own life and and not to say that like oh, I was there in the beginning that's not what I mean by that but it's just when you see things that come in new and and have seen it all from essentially the beginning mm-hmm. um, to have these new iterations of what a face of Star Wars can be what can be front facing. Yeah. as a Star Wars thing evolve and to have a show like this um, this year outside of just the timeliness of what the show is but to have this show come out after all of this time uh, from the like removed from the original Star Wars uh, story is a testament to what this IP can still offer mm-hmm. and we think about kind of just the changes that have happened within Disney over the last couple of weeks with Bob Iger coming back you know the promise of new movies has always been there but whether or not Bob Chapek was a reason why they didn't happen we won't know um, until somebody tells us but this has been uh, a very promising stor- sort of storytelling because it gave us, like I said in the beginning, something that we always wanted but didn't know what it was going to look like or how it was going to feel, yeah. especially on the back end. And if you think about it, we've been living with the show now for just over two months. Two and a half months ago, you and some of our friends were at the premiere. And if you put it into perspective of what it felt like for you and for us at home watching this thing, those first couple of episodes and the promise of what the show could be from that first arc, 
to what the show has become and the promise of what this gives us for Star Wars going forward, uh, both in the television space and the movie space and in the book space and in comics, you know, just like all of the storytelling combined, it gives me uh, a lot of what Star Wars is supposed to give you. It gives me the hope of a better future for what this franchise could be. Hmm. Um, and I'm, I'm just excited for a lot of what's going to be coming both from this show and from all the other things that maybe I wasn't totally on board with. Like, you know, Bad Batch season one wasn't my favorite. Um, there's some other things that didn't really hit me as much. Right. I'm hope I'm hoping that I can get part of that. You know, I know I'm going to yeah. get a different kind of enjoyment from Mando, you know, and Ahsoka. It, it's going to be a different kind of storytelling. Um, but the promise for engagement is there for me because of how much of this show drew me in. Mm-hmm. even from a perspective of bias, because I've been screaming about it for four years. Sure. Um, you know, it's, it was, it's very fulfilling now on the back end of it. Absolutely. Beautifully said, well said. And the idea of Star Wars continuing to surprise and like, like you were saying, like you were an original trilogy kid and that's not like I've been there. Therefore, you know, I have the bigger fan card. It's not that what you're you know, I agree. Like you've seen it change. You've seen like the prequels come out and be like, well, what if Star Wars was this? You've seen the Clone Wars come out and it's like, well, what if it was this? And like, what if we were doing these things and these things and these things? And it needs to be that. So I, you know, if you're listening to this and you love Andor, we love it too. But I would caution people, let's not as a collective fall into the trap that people fell into post Batman Begins or Dark Knight, where they were like, well, it all needs to be this. No, it's great that the two Star Wars stories that talk the most about how fascism works are the cel-shaded Disney XD slapstick pilot show resistance and Andor. It's great that the next thing after Andor will be Bad Batch. And then after that, it is more Star Wars Visions. And then after that, more Mandalorian. Like, I like that they are doing this thing now of you can't pin us down. We're not one thing. You will not be able to predict. And honestly, you know, Mando has been taking some punches during the Andor season, which has been frustrating for me because I think it's been done in bad faith because they're not trying to be the same thing. But what Mandalorian did is what Andor also did, which was it surprised us. They said, we're making a casting and Andor show. The phrase spy thriller was thrown around a lot. And it really wasn't that. They said, we're making this go- this lone gunslinger Mandalorian show. And it really wasn't that. It was about right. fathers and sons and community and religion and leaving your religion, all the things that Mandalorian talks about. So I'm excited now that we've had another full Star Wars season in the books that we can say, here's another thing that we can do. I mean, during this, we had Tales of the Jedi, which was, here's other stuff that we can do. We can flush out this character. We could do it in shorts. Here's a two minute Grogu short by Studio Ghibli. And like, look what we can do over here with no dialogue and how we can tell that story. And I love that Star Wars is doing that. So when I hear some people say, oh, Andor was so good. We're going to go back to regular Star Wars now. Don't be cynical because that's not what Star Wars wants from you. Star Wars mm-hmm. calls on you to be optimistic. That's what Nemec is saying. You could be cynical and say, I love Dandor and now Mando's going to be silly again. It's like, well, it should be both. And Return of the Jedi, Return of the Jedi is my example because that's my favorite movie. That's Luke and Vader and Palpatine and the Battle of Endor and all this stuff. But it's also Zhao Yaoza yelling right into the camera. <laughs> it's also like the Sarlacc pit. It's also uh, Gamorrean guards. It's also Akbar. Like Akbar's mm. cool now, but like hey, in 1983, it was like, who's that he fish? Wasn't then. 
Who's yeah, what's, what's what? Who's this guy with the floppy hand? What, what the hell's that? And as I remind people, um, to quote Nikki, uh, Nikki Kumar, like Mod Mothma, this character we all love now, this super nuanced, beautifully drawn political figure, and this this woman and this mother and this wife and everything. She was one of the original Glup Shittos. She was just who's that? I've never seen that woman before in the other two movies. And look what we've been able to do with her. So as we come out of Andor, you know, winding down this conversation, just appreciate it for what it is. And then ask yourself, how does it connect to other things? That's that's what's exciting to me. And so I'm I'm so glad that we've been able to chat about this episode today, Rick. It's been great. And we're going to be doing it much more. I can't wait to talk about Andor season two for a year with you and all of our friends in this community. And then for all of us to be wrong, um, because <laughs> Gilroy will throw a curveball. But why don't you uh, tell everybody where they could find you and your show? Well, first of all, thanks for having me on. You know, this was very much a, a continuation of the last episode we did of Jam Transmissions together after episode 10. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's like, it's been two weeks, but it's like no time has passed. It's been wonderful. Thanks for having me on. But you guys, you can find me um, on Twitter and on The Hive uh, at Cad Bane's Bounty. Uh, you can find me on Instagram, same handle. And you can find my show, Jam Transmissions, on Twitter and Hive at JT Comlink. And on Instagram, we are, or I am, uh, jam transmissions over there. Um, find the show on pretty much every platform that uh, pods are to be found. Uh, I would appreciate um, you know rating and reviewing and all of that fun stuff. Uh, just to let me know that you're listening. Retweets are great. Tell, tell your friends who maybe aren't involved in the online space about uh, what we do on uh, on jam transmissions. The the feedback that I've gotten over the run of this show has been nothing short of inspiring. Uh, to know that I'm not just screaming into the void uh, and people are listening and they're really um, fi- I guess finding value in what it, what it is that I have to say. It's very humbling. Uh, and it is, it is great to know that uh, there are people that are there that are listening. The opposite of what Andor says, uh, that nobody's listening. Uh, somebody's listening yeah. out there, which is, which yeah. is wonderful. It's more the end um, of Rogue One. It's that, it's that go. version. Yeah. Yeah. But not, not on the beach. No, no, not on the beach. Uh, no one will be blowing up Rick's residence with a laser today. Not today, I hope not. No. but, but, you know, he will make it uh, at least, at least, you know, now we're in the countdown. Let's, let's all get Rick to end our season two and then we can blow him up. Um, <laughs> yeah, this has been so great. Everybody go down to the links, check Rick out, follow him, follow his show, keep up with jam transmissions, keep up with everything that's going on um, in his output. Um, some of the most great and sprawling conversations i mean the episode we did together this man quoted shakespeare in our star wars conversation like rick is one of my favorite people in the space and i'm so glad we were able to to round this one out together uh, as for me personally you can find me everywhere uh, twitter instagram tiktok and hive all that all in diaz t-h-a-t-a-l-d-e-n-d-i-a-z octo radio everywhere you get your star wars podcast a-h-c-h-t-o radio and then you can find of course our other shows now that andrew's over rewatch between worlds is going to be coming back with me and nikki going through star wars rebels we also have all the inner Interviews that happen here. We have other things that are in the works. More High Republic stuff is coming up. Daniel Jose Older is going to be returning to the show. Now it's the march toward Bad Batch season two because 2023, it ain't ever going to stop. We're going to get more Star Wars than we've ever gotten before. So as we move into the holidays, everybody, just remember, don't sleep. Stay awake because evil thrives when you're asleep. 
Be like Marva, wake up, get out there, make a change, head down to the links. I always put links down below. I don't do a good enough job of reminding people about it. I'm trying to be better about that. There's links to ongoing GoFundMes. There's links to different charities, things that have been put together by the fans, Blackout Star Wars Eclipse, the Amidala Initiative. It just goes on and on and on with ways that you can get involved. We joke, we love this space fantasy, we love these stories. But the reason why this one hit is because it was so timely and it is hard. And so while you're out there in the holidays and everything, just you know, reach out to a friend be a brasso keep an eye on everybody that's in your community and just be well so for right now for me for rick and for that guy cassian andor we will catch you next time punch it chewy